Fieldwork acknowledges the traditional custodians of the lands on which our podcast is produced. We would like to pay respect to their elders, past, present and future, and extend our respect to all First Nations people. And there is a way, I think, within the Australian sort of framework of thinking about the environment, is that people think the environment is somewhere else, that it's it's not in the cities, it's not in their backyard, like literally their backyard. It's what happens sort of outside the reaches of the city. You're listening to Fieldwork, the podcast on contemporary Australian art. I'm Drew Pettifer. And in Fieldwork, I bring together conversations with artists and experts discussing key themes of contemporary art practice. Today on Fieldwork, environmental activism with Raquel Ormella. Hi, I'm Raquel Ormella. I'm an artist based here in Canberra and in Sydney. I teach at ANU and I've been working, making work for more than 20 years. So the main themes in my practice are nationalism and national identity and the way that that plays out through environmental politics but also in political language and the aesthetic forms of protest which over the course of the time I've been making work have radically changed from the in the real and material items to like posters, banners to mostly being online. So there is a sense in which I feel like my work is always running after time rather than being in time. The first protest I went to was at high school and I grew up in WA and we went down to Fremantle because there was some nuclear-powered warships from my the US Navy. Coming, is that right? Yeah, ah, in Sydney. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. And the peace movement was pretty big in WA at the time. We're talking 80s here. And 86. I was kind of shocked at the time that you'd basically have a nuclear reactor pulling in to port a few hundred metres from where people were living. From there, I sort of continued to be involved in activism in one form or another. I'm Adam Bant. I'm the Federal Member of Parliament for Melbourne and I'm one of the Deputy Leaders of the Greens. I worked as a lawyer representing a lot of low-paid workers around the country. The thing that tipped me away from career in the law into running for politics was climate change and understanding sort of just how little time we've got to turn the ship around and the, the effort that's going to be needed. And I felt that government and politics was one of the places that I could make that happen. So. It was back in 2007 and I quit and I ran and I got elected in 2010 and I've been here since. I think climate change and those issues around the environment are one of the big intersections between your practices or your your careers. I'm interested to hear you both speak about how you think activism and engagement with those kinds of issues might have changed over the years too because I feel like the way that we do politics today around activism has shifted quite a lot since that period in the 80s. Yeah, I I think it's still there it's in different forms and I think we're going through a moment I guess of rediscovering the power of social movements in some ways but I think we shouldn't forget that there were still some pretty big demonstrations say against the Iraq war um, back you know some of the biggest demonstrations we saw on the streets of Melbourne happened outside that period so I, I do think there's still a great strength of feeling. I think we're just, but we're coming out of a period of, I guess, three or four decades of 
um, being told by whoever was in government, being told, well, there is no alternative. Market is going to run our life, is going to run our government. Big corporations have a lot of power. And for a long time, I think people were told by a lot of people that there wasn't there wasn't any hope, there wasn't any alternative. And I think we're, saying, we're witnessing around the world now a resurgence of people saying, well, not only is that not right, but that potentially politics can be a place where good things happen as well as where bad things happen. And I, I'm kind of quite excited by that. Mm. And I think, I mean, there are lots of times when a lot of people gather on the street, but I think there's a sense that with social media, things are able to be a bit more decentered. So you often see, you know, protests or rallies for marriage equality in a lot of small towns. And there isn't a sense in which people feel like they want to be in a space with a million plus people as it was for the Iraq war, though that was very um, incredible um, event in Sydney and in Melbourne, but where people are able to connect with social media and be much closer to home and be kind of in a community and be able to talk to people at those events who they're sharing their lives with. But I think one of the big things is newspapers and media are, you know, always kind of being um, eroded at the moment in terms of their ability to have good research and good reporting done. And so in some respects, like understanding those social movements was very much about the response that you would see on the news or in the newspaper. And if those kinds of forms of communication with the public are also under attack, then there is a way in which we don't necessarily register those kind of movements as being really big or amassing a lot of people because there isn't people to report it. So I think that's really something that's changed. Like, you know, we do something creative, like unfurl a banner across a tall building, requires the media to be there and it to be on the front page of the newspaper. Well, nobody even picks up a newspaper these days. So how do you how do you read the top story if you're accessing it via online? It's clicking across a whole lot of different stories that may have different kind of hierarchies within a newspaper or within a news cycle. So I think that means that the sort of actions which were about putting a campaign to the front of everyone's consciousness has really changed. One of the other things that I find interesting in the contemporary moment around political engagement is and this comes through in your work too, Raquel, is this idea of working at the intersections of different issues as well and recognising the kind of intersectional nature of um, our experiences. So I'm thinking of your recent work around nationalism and animal migration, literally looking at national borders and how animals don't respect those or mm. issues around refugees and climate change. I, I think that, I mean, there's a number of crises that are playing themselves out at the moment. One is neoliberalism being in its death throes and then not it not being clear what would yet take its place and I think there's a couple of ways that we can go out of that one is I guess harnessing the kind of new ways of relating to each other that Raquel was just talking about where we might start to see each other perhaps not through lenses of the market or nationalism but start to look at each other as fellow beings that we share this planet with or the alternative way out, I guess, is is barbarism, Trump, and um, putting up more walls around the country. And the second big crisis that I think is playing out at the moment is obviously the climate crisis and uh, reaching tipping points that we may not be able to pull back from. And there's a number of others that are going on, but those two in particular 
really do intersect with each other. India has essentially built the world, world's first climate fence along part of the border with Bangladesh to stop people moving from one country into another. Now, what's going to happen to those people? What happens if they jump on a boat and try and get to Australia, for example? How are we going to respond? Well, we know how we're going to respond at the moment, which is probably by building higher walls and putting them on other islands until they break over there as well. And all of these, I think, are driven by a more fundamental question, which is how that we hadn't quite yet got right the question of how we as a species relate to the planet and also relate to each other and I think in that space I'm, I'm kind of really encouraged in Australia at the moment seeing in Melbourne for example 20,000 people turn out to an invasion day march you used to get a couple of hundred people going to those things and I think people are increasingly understanding not only that there's unfinished business but what does it mean to sort of march under a certain flag or mm. abide by certain mm. ideas. I always find, you know, young people and young activists really inspiring. And one of the things I find about working with students is the way that, you know, they're constantly telling me how things are changing. So, you know, in a meeting now, student representative meetings, you know, people go around the room and introduce themselves and they say which pronoun they want. And, you know, I would never have thought of doing that, like, even though I was very much involved with queer politics and going to all the early Mardi Gras, going to the anti-vilification rallies, you know, would describe myself as queer, but this is the action I need to personally take in this moment. I find myself being challenged by younger people and young people and their radicalism is, is changing the way we just present ourselves to each other, which I think is really invigorating for me. I mean, I'm glad they're doing the work so that I can just, you know, come along for the ride you know that's really heartening also a lot of the indigenous activists environmental indigenous activists who are really focused on climate change uh seed mob their actions they're doing and i think that question about obviously indigenous uh, sovereignty and environmental activism has been part of the australian environmental politics since franklin campaign so i think you know the it's definitely always been there and it's been the focus of lots of all environmental organisations like how do we how do we acquire land as you know bush, bush heritage how do they acquire land given that that land is already stolen so they're just buying back pastoral leases but given that people indigenous people were recompensated for those indigenous leases so i think that sense of the intersections of Indigenous rights and um, environment have always been there. But I think what's happening now is that they're very much to the front mm. and there are very strong Indigenous voices who are leading leading the way with that and that's that's what's exciting. My next question was really around environmental activism and the relationship with, with humans as, as well because I know, Raquel, that's one of the other issues you look at in your practice is this relationship between nature and culture and almost mm. questioning the, mm. um, the the divisions that pop up there. I'm wondering mm. if you both had some comments about that as well in the contemporary moment. I, I think one of the things that we haven't got right in Western culture in particular, certainly in Australia, in Australian parliamentary culture, but in Australian politics in general, is we still haven't sorted out a question of the proper role of humans in this in, in, in this life that we live. And it's interesting at the moment because, um, interesting is probably not the right word, but in dealing with climate change and the threat that it poses to us and to, I guess, life, life as we know it, including other species, 
on the one hand, we're witnessing human impact writ large, and we geologists are now saying we're in a new era called the Anthropocene, where the effects of humans are now going to be recorded on a geological timescale. So in the same way as we you know, talk about previous eras that have come before us, this will now be one that in future, if there are future generations, they'll look back um, at us and say, well, this was an era where human activity changed the course. What was marked in geology was going to be found in um, what the planet looked like and, and as... Um, as people do the archive work in the future, they'll, they'll record this as an era where we are changing what the planet looks like. And that, on the one hand, poses an enormous amount of responsibility on people. And a number of commentators and writers in this field are saying, well, that actually puts the responsibility squarely back on us. And so we actually need to become more anthropocentric rather than less because we're the ones who are effectively doing all the damage and haven't got it right. But at the same time, on the other hand, you've got a long history of people saying, well, humans need to understand our smaller role in the ecosystem and be less anthropocentric. Uh, and it's one, I think, that social movements are kind of grappling with at the moment. So I'm not particularly interested as an artist in terms of separating the human from the natural world or just representing you know, the landscape without a sense of the human or birds or bird species without a sense of the human. And so even if that's just using things like field guides as a way of documenting the number of birds or a particular bird, because that form of representation is highly encultured. So it's not sort of about trying to find ways of representing the individual animal. It's about representing that interaction, which is, you know, millennia old in relation to Indigenous interactions with the natural world and in terms of post-enlightenment and this idea of science as a a way of understanding the natural world. So as an artist, I guess I'm trying to bring those languages together in a visual form which evokes those systems and so is able to communicate that interaction of the human. I think that's the central political question at the moment. What does it mean? to place a priority on that question of interconnection and interrelationship and yeah. what would that what would that look like? What does an economy look like that is based on that? What does a politics look like that's based on that? What does a culture look like that's based on that? And it's a you know, it's a pretty difficult one to advance up in this place. People generally aren't mm. interested in that kind of question. Mm. And you end up talking in political discourse about the environment as if it's something separate from yeah. us. And one of the big challenges has been that climate change is often spoken about as an environmental issue, for example, whereas yes. in fact, like it's actually, no, it's just about how we relate to the rest of the world, how we relate to each other, and it's going to impact on our way of life in every conceivable way. But I do think we kind of have to rebuild from the ground up a new politics that is based on that question of interrelationship, because without it, like we, we're not going to succeed on any front, I think. We recorded this conversation in Adam's office in Parliament House. Whenever members need to vote, a bell goes off and a light flashes red for the Senate or green for the House of Representatives. It's just it's completely Pavlovian in here. Every time the bell rings, you just look straight Did up. It. Yeah, starts, starts salivating. At this point in the interview, you'll hear the bells in the background. Yeah, so there is a lot of, um, in terms of those kind of policy decisions, which think about the environment as somewhere else. 
or think about, you know, waste and waste management as not necessarily being a central environmental question. I think that's changing a bit with this consciousness around plastic, though, that's sort of collapsing those boundaries. Um, And climate change is, you know, the ultimate boundary collapser because it's where the the high points of greenhouse gas emissions, uh, you know, like a aluminium smelter or a bauxite mine, they're often not in the places which are then being most directly affected by the greenhouse gas emissions, which is, you know, Bangladesh, low-lying Pacific Islands. That, I think that point about plastics is really insightful. One of the things that we grapple with, I guess, is constantly, if you see climate change as being an existential threat, as, as I do and um, most scientists do, it's clear it's not a question for the scientists anymore, it's a question for the humanities about how mm. do we, how we're going to deal with that. And part of our job in politics as people who care about that is how do we best communicate it and persuade people of the need to act mm. on it. And But I think the point about plastics as being one of those crossover areas where mm. it's, it's, it's neither outside nor inside, it's both, mm. is really instructive and... I think increasingly a few more of those little things are breaking through and I, mean, I still still have in my mind sort of the door knocking that I did on my first ever campaign back in 2007 and just having a chat with a woman who was in her front yard. <clears throat> I got sort of a third of the mm. way through my spiel and she said, oh, yeah, look, you don't need to convince me. I think everyone knows that the way that we're doing things at the moment is not sustainable. And it was like just summarised there in one sentence. It's like, yeah. yes, that's right. <laughs> okay. So now what do we now what do we do about it? And I think yeah. it's finding those ways to have those conversations. That's that's one of the big challenges. This is the problem, is because it's it, it's that level of change or the shift, you know, of one degrees. You know, I think oh that might be slow, but it's it is sort of slow, but it's also quick. It's too quick for a forest to to adjust to allow for a niche species of birds or animals to move, you know, into a higher kind of mountain area so that their food source is there because it's happening It's happening at a rate that isn't really giving a lot of things time to adjust. I think everyone, like that, that woman in Abbotsford that I door-knocked many years ago, are going, well, hang on, this isn't, this isn't right, this isn't sustainable. And I think mm. a lot of people know in their hearts and in their guts that we can't keep going on as the way we are. But on the other hand sort of the last 30 or 40 years have been a project of saying, well, actually, ordinary people don't have that much power. And Mm. it's like we've got this great new system in place and forget about the global financial crisis that we caused, but, you know, just leave us to run run the world and it will all be okay. And I think for me, a lot of people are feeling like, well, we know it's wrong, but can we do anything about it? And mm. it's that, like, what would it mean if we wanted to do something about it? How mm. would we do it? Do we come together as a nation to do it? Do we come together on our street level to do it? Do we do it individually in our households? And perhaps the answer is kind of all of the above. People are grasping now for what are the new ways of organising ourselves to actually do something about it and to start to feel powerful again. The risk of being glib, climate change has arrived at the wrong time and it's arrived on a scene where we're kind of a bit devoid of political imagination and by mm. that I, I mean that's especially represented in the parties but you see it with the low levels of trust in democracy mm. and in mm. and I think part of our job has to be to build that sentiment back up again that people are powerful government is necessary to to mm. steer us out of this but it's not sufficient and if we give government 
too much power, it's not necessarily going to be good in the long run. Well, you know, when the Second World War happened, the First World War happened, the way that the populace said, yes, this is a crisis, and so therefore every resource, every everything is regenerated around this, you know, particular crisis, and huge changes can happen. And it just feels like that's a way in which the the polyp, I don't know. Do you do we want to give? I don't know if I want to give this parliament the power to, to kind of yeah, big question. Yeah, right? yeah, to, to 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 shift everything that's happening in relation mm. to, you know, yeah, money, employment, resources, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, to fight to fight something. But that's the kind of action that where radical change can happen. Yes, but it's you know do. Yeah, I don't want to give this parliament that right. And I would we want to give that to any parliament? I don't know. It's That's a big question. It was art that you lived with, that you thought about, that became part of your frame of reference. Uh, beautifully made. My name's Rebecca Coates and I'm the director of SAM, Shepparton Art Museum. Rebecca recently co-curated a survey show of Raquel O'Mella's work called I Hope You Get This, which will tour Australia over the next two years. I think it's been very interesting to hear Raquel talk about herself over the years. I think early on she had a very strong social agenda and I don't think she was making work first and foremost as an activist. She was an artist and is an artist whose ideas are developed and explored and, and shared through the media that she uses But I do think that great art can sometimes be a catalyst for conversation or if sometimes it's a bit of a zeitgeist, the right work at the right moment at the right time and it sort of takes on a life of its own. And that's where it's perhaps not the work itself but it's a confluence of of events. I think that we do see that often with Raquel's work. They do touch a chord And I think the chord is wider than those that read it purely within art historic terms. You know, the number of people who come in and look at the high-vis material and say, you know, that's something I understand very well. And then look again and look and look again at what's actually being said because there's something that they connect to. So that's the real role, I think. That's the way that her work really engages. I have great faith in artists and the colleagues that I work and talk with in the art world. I think that we tread lightly, we read deeply, we try and make sense of the world in which we live, complex as it is. Uh, Certainly I am very drawn to working with artists who I think have a similar desire and similar endeavours. Where my belief comes from is that often I think artists enable us to talk about difficult things through the way in which they approach these complex ideas in their work or through their work. It's not that the work is didactic and it's not that the work necessarily has agency in and of itself, but it enables us to dip in and out of ideas and to articulate or have those conversations in front of or around these works by just presenting them in a slightly different way or from a side. Our institutions now are pretty robust and I think that part of our responsibility is to talk about difficult things. We live within a contemporary context, we understand these notions of contemporaneity and issues and concerns around how we relate to each other, a sense of engagement or disengagement between community groups, the knock-on effects of the mineral boom in Australia, our moral and ethical responsibilities to the land in which we 
live. These are all things that I think we all talk about all the time. I would suggest that, you know, Australia is often depicted as a sort of relatively apolitical society. You know, if you think about 1968 on and the student protests and so on, people often say, oh, look, Australians don't really get worked up about anything. I think we read far more deeply and think about these things far more deeply than the politicians and our tabloids would have us believe. These are all conversations that we all have. And so to create often very beautiful works that are exquisitely made. You know, Raquel has a a mastery of the materials that she uses that enables us to transcend that material to think about these deeper, more profound ideas. These are discussions that Raquel is having with us because she's not doing it in isolation that enables us to give voice to, to, to some of our concerns and some of these issues. Fieldwork is produced by Shannon Goodwin and me, Drew Pettifer, and supported by Bus Projects. Audio production, editing and mixing by Beck Fari. Our theme music is by Martin King. Lachlan Sue is our graphic designer. Our intern is Jake Davies. Special thanks to Raquel Ormella, Adam Bant and Rebecca Coates. This is the last episode of our first season of Fieldwork, so we just wanted to take a moment to thank all of the incredible guests who've joined us along the way. And thanks to you for listening. Season two is in the works, and we'll be dropping some special bonus episodes between seasons, so keep an eye on our podcast feed. For past episodes and information on how to subscribe, head to fieldworkpodcast.com.au. See you next time on Fieldwork.